Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has openly shown in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice, and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with a harp, with a harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. With, a, with righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Amen. <clears throat> Since we as Presbyterians believe the Westminster Confession of Faith to be a secondary standard, which accurately summarizes the teaching of Scripture, let us listen to the words of those godly and learned biblical scholars who over five years, seven months, and 22 days, that is from July the 1st, 1643 to February the 22nd, 1649, and in which time they held 1,163 sessions or meetings. These godly and learned men penned these words concerning the subject of song in worship. Chapter 21, section 5. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, in obedience unto God, with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. This very same body that wrote those words these finest of Reformed scholars that would be found anywhere in the world at that time or in this time also composed a directory for worship in 1645. And in the very first sentence of the chapter in the directory for public worship, that chapter is entitled The Singing of Psalms. In the very first sentence of that chapter, we find these words. It is the duty of Christians to praise God publicly by singing of psalms together in the congregation and also privately in the family. But did the Westminster Assembly mean by psalms, psalms in a general sense of Christian hymns and songs? <clears throat> or did they mean the inspired psalms of David? Well, Mr. Francis Roos, a member of Parliament and a member of the Westminster Assembly, put the 150 Psalms of David into meter. 
And he entitled this Psalter, quote, The Psalms of David in English Meter. And it was this Psalter that was approved by the Westminster Assembly to be alone used in worship. We find this notation in the minutes of April the 15th, 1646. This motion was made, quote, ordered that the book of Psalms set forth by Mr. Roos and perused by the assembly of divines be forthwith printed in sundry volumes and that the said Psalms and none other get that phrase and none other shall after the first day of January next be sung in all churches and chapels. <clears throat> there can be no doubt that when the assembly said singing of psalms, they meant the psalms, the inspired psalms of David. The only controversy in the Westminster Assembly as to song in worship was which version of metrical psalms should be used, not whether songs outside the Psalter should be used. <clears throat> Dear ones, this is the biblical heritage that's been bequeathed to us by our Reformed forefathers. And God help us to faithfully pass this on to succeeding generations. I'd like to compare this just momentarily, passing this on to our children and grandchildren, to a relay race. At which point in a relay race is a race most likely to be lost? At the passing of the baton. If the baton is dropped, the race will be lost. If we will see in future generations, if we will lay a foundation for generations to come, we must faithfully pass on the baton of biblical Christianity, which is the Reformed faith. And one very important aspect of the Reformed faith, that of purity and worship unto our children and grandchildren. Let's not drop the baton. If Christianity, dear ones, is to be strong, if it is to be vital and living and courageous in, in years to come, Christians in succeeding generations must know and must be conversant with the Psalms. They must memorize the Psalms. They must sing in worship the Psalms. Because this was the song in worship that held the church together through difficult times in ages gone by. <clears throat> There are just two, before I actually get into the text of my sermon, I simply want to mention two very brief objections. <clears throat> Some of our brethren in Reformed churches have shared the concern 
that if we sing exclusively psalms, that we would not be able to sing specifically the name of Jesus because one does not find the name of Jesus in the psalms. Well, I do not, quite frankly, share that concern that some do. In singing the psalms, we sing of Jesus continuously throughout the psalms. We sing of Jesus as our Lord, as our God, as our Christ, as our Savior and Redeemer, as our chief cornerstone, as our rock, refuge, judge, prophet, priest, and king. We sing all the time of Jesus, even though we may not specifically use the name Jesus. Dear ones, Jesus is a blessed name, and we rejoice in Jesus our Savior. But nowhere are we ever commanded to sing the name of Jesus. The second very brief objection that some of the brethren have brought is that they have pointed out that our metrical versions of the Psalms are not uh, as accurate as they should be. Without arguing the case, I think any of us would say, certainly, the metrical version of our Psalms can always be improved. And we should continuously strive to improve those versions. But let me simply say that that's not an argument against the exclusive use of Psalms any more than imperfect versions of the Scripture is an argument against the use of the Bible in worship. Let's get to the hard work of making those changes if that is a problem. Today we conclude our series on song and worship. And we will be focusing our attention on three areas today. First of all, I'd like to make some concluding remarks concerning Ephesians 5.19. Second, we're going to briefly look at some other so-called hymnic passages, passages in the New Testament that are purported to have been fragments of hymns. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the new songs in Revelation, the book of Revelation. So those will be the three areas, categories we'll be looking at as we conclude our series this Lord's Day. (coughs) Excuse me. First of all, in Ephesians 5.19, what have we noted thus far concerning this text? Let me summarize briefly what we have concluded. First of all, we've seen from this passage that the context in Ephesians chapter 5 addresses Christian living in a broad sense. We find in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christian living is addressed as it pertains to to living outside the church. For example, in chapter 5 verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 
we find that in Ephesians chapter 5, Christian living within the home and within the family is addressed in verses 22 through 33, where wives are addressed, where husbands are addressed. And then we find as well that Christian living is addressed within the church in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Now, I know that there are many who would probably say that chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 does not pertain to the worship of God. I've tried to demonstrate that there are sufficient reasons to see that there is that specific application in these passages. For example, as we look at this text, there appears to be a contrast in Ephesians 5.18 between the drunken gatherings of non-Christians and the spirit-filled gatherings of Christians. Spirit-filled gatherings where there is speaking among yourselves, plural, corporately, speaking among yourselves with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Where there is, furthermore, singing and psalming with your, plural, I want to emphasize that, underlying the word your, singing and psalming with your, plural, heart, singular. Now, you tell me how in normal grammar that makes sense. Your, plural, heart, singular. Unless it refers to your, plural, heart, corporate, as you gather together. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly something we do as we gather on the Lord's Day together. Submitting to one another. That certainly has, again, the context of the church. Submitting to one another as fellow believers in the fear of God. All five participles seem to have a particular application to the Christian in the context of church and worship. The second thing we noted uh, concerning Ephesians 5:19 and following is that the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that are mentioned here are an example of Hebrew parallelism, where the different words do not emphasize different meanings between the words, but rather they emphasize the same meaning. (coughs) In In the headings of the psalms, in the Greek Septuagint, these three terms as I've mentioned before, are used interchangeably with no distinction intended. Now, this is a little bit of new material. Let me simply point this out to you. These terms are used in the headings interchangeably. For example, we find these words, a song of David among the Psalms. And that's in Psalm 64 in the Septuagint, Psalm 65 in our English version. We find also this phrase, a psalm of a song. Find that in Psalm 29, 
I'm just going to list the Septuagint chapters, and if you're interested in finding them in the English, <clears throat> I may not say exactly the same thing in the English, but these are the Septuagint chapters, Psalm 29, 47, 67, 74, 86, and 91. We find these words, a song of a psalm. In Psalm 65, 82, 87, and 107. And finally, we find this phrase, a psalm of David among the hymns. In Psalm 6 and 66. <clears throat> and unless those words are used interchangeably, it's very difficult. What is the distinction that is being made between those words? One further piece of evidence of this Hebrew parallelism within the very verse that we are looking at in Hebrews 5.19 is Paul's use of singing and psalming. That's a classic example of Hebrew parallelism. Singing and psalming. No distinction is intended between those two participles. In fact, those same two verbs are used in the Psalms themselves. For example, in Psalm, in the English version, Psalm 27, verse 6. Look at that for just a moment. Psalm 27, 6, which would be in the Septuagint, Psalm 26, 6. <clears throat> it says in verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore... I will offer sacrifices of joy, notice where he says, in his tabernacle. David says, I will offer sacrifices of joy in the tabernacle. Now, David didn't build the temple. He was still worshiping God in the tabernacle that had been constructed and moved to Jerusalem. But it says in the next phrase, I will sing, yes, I will sing psalms, literally, or I will psalm to the Lord. The same two verbs that are used in Ephesians 5.19 are here used in Psalm 27.6. I will sing, yes, I will psalm to the Lord. And it's said to happen in the tabernacle. <clears throat> and David making that statement, I will sing, I will psalm to the Lord. What other songs did he sing but the songs that he wrote, which are the psalms of David? And that's not the only time, if just for your notes. Psalm, <clears throat> the English version, Psalm 105.2 and Psalm 108.1 say the same thing. Use the same two verbs as you find in Ephesians 5.19 a case of Hebrew parallelism where it's referring to the Psalms of David. The third point about <clears throat> Ephesians 5.19 that we have noted is that the historical context in which Paul used these three terms, that in that context there would have been an immediate association with the inspired Psalms of David because of the past redemptive history. In the temple, that's what was sung. In the synagogue, that was what was sung. That is what Christ sang with his disciples. That immediate association. 
And fourthly, these three terms are never, this is extremely important, these three terms are never necessarily applied after David, psalms, hymns, and songs, are never necessarily applied after David to any songs in the worship of God by living saints. They are always applied to the Psalter, to the inspired Psalter. They are never necessarily applied to anything outside the Psalter by living saints in their worship of God. Now, the final point that I want to make <clears throat> from Ephesians 5.19 is new material. I wanted to bring this up to speed very quickly. <clears throat> this final point has to do with the, if you're in Ephesians 5.19, has to do with the small word spiritual. That adjective, spiritual. Notable Greek scholars such as A.T. Robertson and Moulton and many others believe the adjective spiritual modifies all three words. In other words, what we have here is speaking among yourselves by means of spiritual psalms, hymns, and songs. However, what is the sense of the word spiritual? Whether it applies to all three terms or whether it applies to only the last, what is the sense of the word spiritual? Well, I affirm <clears throat> that it is the meaning of spiritual is spirit-originated, spirit-created, or spirit-inspired. This is the sense of the word in 21 of its 22 uses in the New Testament. The only exception to that rule is Ephesians 6.12, where spiritual seems to have the sense of immaterial in contrast to material, that which is of flesh and blood. Speaking of the demonic forces, the spiritual forces of wickedness, that which is immaterial to that, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against these spiritual forces, these, these forces that are not flesh and blood, that you cannot see. And I would say that's the only time in which the word spiritual does not mean either spirit originated or spirit created or spirit inspired in all the New Testament. In all the other uses, spiritual refers to that which is supernaturally created or inspired by the Holy Spirit, whether it is Spiritual blessings, as in Ephesians 1.3. Spiritual gifts, as in 1 Corinthians 12.1. A spiritual body, which is our resurrected body, as in 1 Corinthians 15.44. A spiritual law, in Romans 7.4. Spiritual words, in 1 Corinthians 2.13. A spiritual house which refers to the church in 1 Peter 2.5, spiritual sacrifices in 1 Peter 2.5, spiritual food, which was the manna 
supernaturally produced, created by God in 1 Corinthians 10.3. Spiritual drink in 1 Corinthians 10.4, the water. A spiritual rock from which it flowed in 1 Corinthians 10.4. Spiritual people in 1 Corinthians 2.15 and 3.1. Or spiritual psalms, hymns, and songs as we find in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. It's interesting that there are three uses, as we talk about this word spiritual, there are three uses of the word spiritual with words that indicate some kind of verbal communication. In Romans 7.14, we find that the law is spiritual. That verbal communication in words, the law of God, is spiritual. And in 1 Corinthians 2.13, comparing spiritual words or spiritual truths with spiritual words and truths is what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.13. Not in the words taught by man's wisdom, it says very clearly, but that which is taught by the Holy Spirit, those spiritual words. Now, in these two uses that we have just noted in Romans 7.14 and in 1 Corinthians 2.13, we find very clearly that what is being taught there is that the law is spiritual in the sense that it is created by the Spirit of God. It originated by the Spirit of God. The same thing with the words that we find in 1 Corinthians 2.13. Comparing spiritual words with spiritual words. Words produced by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now those are the only two outside of this next reference that refer to verbal communication and use the word spiritual. The third one is speaking to yourselves in spiritual psalms hymns, and songs. Now, why should we, all of a sudden, when we have all these references in the New Testament referring to spiritual as meaning that which is generated, produced, created, inspired by the Holy Spirit, why should we all of a sudden understand Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 as meaning anything less? Particularly when the two previous times in Romans 7.14 and 1 Corinthians 2.13, it means verbal communication that was inspired by God. Some of our dear brethren, and I don't throw that term dear brethren out uh, in any kind of a unsincere, insincere way or manner, I really do consider so many of the brethren who disagree with us on this issue as being beloved and dear brethren. But many of them who oppose exclusive psalmody have noted that the use of spiritual in 1 Corinthians 2.15 and in 1 Corinthians 3.1 does not mean inspired. For they say that Christians do sin And there is error in them. In those two passages, it's talking about Christians being spiritual people. 
<clears throat> they point out, rightfully so, that Christians do err. How can the word therefore mean inspired? Because inspired means that there can't be any error in it. It seems like an inconsistency. <clears throat> well, I'd have you carefully note that the contrast in those two passages, in 1 Corinthians 2.15 and 1 Corinthians 3.1, the contrast that Paul is drawing out is that of a spiritual man who is a Christian with that of a natural man who is a non-Christian. The spiritual man is one who is a new creation in Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. The spiritual man is one who has been, been created as God's workmanship, according to Ephesians 2.10. The spiritual man is one who is a new man. You see, the contrast here makes it very clear that what Paul is saying is a spiritual man is what Christ was talking about. He who is born of the flesh is flesh, but he who is born of the spirit is spirit. Something very supernaturally has happened to one who is a Christian. Something that is completely altogether the work of the Spirit of God. We have been resurrected by the Spirit of God. We've been made new. We are new creation in Christ. That's what spiritual means there. It is the work of the Spirit. It is nothing that we as human beings have added to in any way. And so Paul's admonition to the Corinthians at this point is, you are to act like, like spiritual people. You're not to act carnal or fleshly. You've been created anew by the Spirit of God. Act that way. Think that way. One of my prayers for you, my dear flock, is that God would give to you a living knowledge of what it means to be a spiritual man. That all things have become new. The old things have passed away. You are a new creation in Christ. To understand in some very real and practical way in your everyday living what it means to be one who has been created anew by the Spirit of God. To understand you don't have to give in to those temptations when Satan comes knocking on your door. You do not have to open the door. You do not have to say yes. You can receive the glorious wisdom that comes from God. You can understand the things that are taught by the Spirit of God. Those things which are spiritually discerned because you are a spiritual man, woman, or child. That's what Paul is emphasizing there in that text. <coughs> the spiritual, <coughs> this adjective that's used... 22 times in the New Testament and used 21 times 
it becomes the more common term when you're referring to that which is supernaturally created or inspired by the Holy Spirit, it becomes the common term to use rather than the term that's used in 2 Timothy 3.16 where it talks about all scripture is inspired of God, theonoustos. That is only used once. And it's only used by Paul and it's never used that we know of in any other setting by any other writer in biblical literature or extra biblical literature apparently it was something that Paul himself put together now the fact that Paul in Ephesians 5:19 and Colossians 3:16 uses the more familiar term does not mean that the psalms hymns and songs are not inspired at all <clears throat> I would just, before I move on to the hymnic passages in the New Testament, I just ask, how can you possibly compare songs that are spirit-created with songs that are man-created? There can be no comparison between those two songs. In Isaiah 40, God asks this question, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal? The answer, obviously, is you can't liken God to anyone. Nothing is equal to God. Can you not ask the same question with regard to God's law? To what will you liken God's spiritual law? What can you compare by way of man's invention, man's creation, the law of God? because it's spiritual. You can't. In like manner, with what will you liken or to what will you liken or compare God's word? Spiritual words. What is equal to it that man produces? Nothing. And in like manner, to what will you liken spiritual psalms and hymns and songs that have been created by the Holy Spirit? What is equal to those? And there is no equal. Are we not to bring to God the best in worship? As we consider now our second main point, these hymnic passages. Again, some of our Reformed brothers have cited various passages in the New Testament that supposedly refer to pieces of ancient hymns sung in Christian worship, which, if true, would indicate that the Apostolic Church was not an exclusively psalm-singing church if there were other passages or other songs that they sang. One of the passages that is cited is in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. This is after the disciples had been released, having been examined by the Sanhedrin. 
And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Verse 24. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said. And the remainder of what they said is in verses 24 through 30. Now, it is by these <clears throat> Reformed brethren, it is uh, indicated that the fact that they raised their voice together with one accord must mean that they sang this together. Well, let's simply make a, two or three observations here. First of all, any specific indication of this being sung is completely omitted from the text. There's no indication that this was sung. Second, this is obviously a prayer to the Lord for that very specific occasion. It's not a song that had been memorized by all of the people gathered there, which obviously, if it were a song, would have had to have been written earlier and memorized and then sung on this specific occasion. Because the words of this prayer pertain specifically to what they just underwent. Thirdly, it is not likely that all those present simultaneously lifted their voices together in prayer and uttered the exact same prayer. Listen to the words of Matthew Henry. He says, not that it can be supposed that they all said the same words at the same time. Though it, was, though it was possible, they might, being all inspired by one in the same spirit, but one in the name of the rest lifted up his voice to God and the rest joined with him. Their hearts went along with him. And so, though but one spoke, they all prayed. One lifted up his voice, and in concurrence with him, they all lifted up their hearts, which was, in effect, lifting up their voice to God, for thoughts are as words to God. Nevertheless, we can say, I think, very clearly, there's no clear warrant from this passage for singing songs outside the Psalter. This is a prayer that was uttered, not a song that was sung. The second passage is in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. There, in the midst of this discussion having to do with spiritual gifts, prophecy, and speaking in tongues, Paul seeking to bring order to the Christian assembly there, he says in verse 26, How is it then, brethren... Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now here it is by some, or said by some, that the psalm referred to is a psalm spontaneously inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thus here, they would say, is warrant for singing songs outside the Psalter. Just again, a couple <clears throat> notes about this verse. 
First, there is no necessity to understand the psalm referred to here as being anything than a psalm of David. Knowing the redemptive historical use of singing the psalms in worship, in the temple, in the synagogue, by Christ, and now as we have learned in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, Paul himself affirming the singing of the inspired Psalter, one should actually assume, as the Corinthians would, that when Paul says each has a psalm, that it would refer to one of the psalms of David. That would be the, the, the immediate thing that would come to mind on the part of the Corinthians, the psalm of David. Second, the psalm referred to in verse 26 should no more be understood as referring to a spontaneous, spontaneously inspired message by the Holy Spirit than the ministry that is listed immediately after a psalm. Notice it says that each has a psalm, has a teaching. Teaching is certainly something that the Holy Spirit's involved with, but, but teaching is not necessarily a spontaneous revelation from God. Nor is the word psalm there a spontaneous revelation from God, but rather a reference to the Old Testament Psalter. Again, Based on what we have noted in 1 Corinthians 14.26, there is no clear warrant here for singing and worship anything outside the Psalter. In fact, if this says anything, it says that what must be sung in worship is that which is inspired. That which is inspired, regardless of the view that one takes, whether it's the Psalter or whether it's a spontaneously inspired song, it was inspired. There certainly is no ground for those who believe in singing uninspired songs or songs here at all. And then, I won't look these passages up, but you can write these down. There are three or four passages and others as well that are sometimes uh, mentioned as being fragments of hymns in the New Testament, such as Ephesians 5.14, Philippians 2.5-11, and 1 Timothy 3.16. Such passages are used by the brethren, and some brethren, to indicate these were at one time fragments of hymns that were sung by the apostolic church. Well, again, let me simply notice we have in the past there is absolutely nothing stated to that effect in these passages that these were sung, that they were hymns, or that they were songs. That is clearly an argument from silence. And you cannot build from an argument from silence to a practice in worship. Practices in worship must be clearly warranted and established by the Word of God. Second, Dr. Delling, who is no exclusive psalmist, 
in Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, makes this observation. He says, quote, Attempts have been made to identify various primitive Christian hymns or hymnal fragments in the New Testament. But such identifications must remain hypothetical. Hypothetical. There is no clear evidence pointing to that fact. These are simply the suppositions of men. We cannot build ordinances upon mere suppositions of men. <clears throat> Again, I would simply note with regard to those hymnic fragments or supposed hymnic fragments that none of these provide clear warrant for singing anything outside the Psalter. And again, if they do provide warrant for songs outside the Psalter, what kind of songs do they warrant? Inspired songs, not uninspired songs. Finally, <clears throat> last category are the new songs in Revelation. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation, and we'll be focusing our attention <clears throat> upon the passages that were read earlier in chapter 14 and chapter 15. <clears throat> Here it again, it is contended that we have clear New Testament warrant for singing songs in worship that are found outside the Psalter. These are songs. They are not found in the Psalter. And they're sung in worship to God. And so it is supposed by many that here is finally clear warrant for singing other than the Psalms. <clears throat> Some of our brethren have said that these new songs are the fulfillment of the Psalms of the Old Testament. That is, that the Psalms of the Old Testament are types and shadows which point to the new songs that are to be sung in New Testament worship. Other brethren have pointed out that just as we are to pray, Thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven, they have pointed out <clears throat> that our pattern of worship on earth should follow the pattern of worship that's in heaven. And on that basis, we should be singing these new songs that are not found in the Psalter. Thus, they would say, God's will in heavenly song is to be the pattern of God's will for earthly song in worship. Well, let's, <clears throat> as we wind up our series on song and worship, let's make these concluding observations. First, it must be sincerely asked, are we really to worship God as is indicated in these symbolic visions which John received? Is that really to be our pattern of worship? 
Are we to wear crowns and cast them before God? As it says in Revelation 4.10. Are we to offer incense on an altar? As it says in Revelation 5.8 and 8.3. Are we to clothe ourselves in white robes and worship God with palm branches? As it says in Revelation 7.9. Are we to reconstruct a temple and the Ark of the Covenant? as we find in Revelation 11.19. You see, my point is simply this. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a highly symbolic vision which was never intended to be a specific pattern for earthly worship in the New Testament. Much is found in the book of Revelation that is typical of Old Testament worship. And I would say that if one were to conclude that the Psalms of the Old Testament are typical in nature, then we would be forbidden from singing the Psalms at all in New Testament worship. We would not be mixing the Old Testament Psalms with new songs in New Testament worship any more than we would offer sacrifices which were typical in the Old Testament. If something is typical, Christ's death and resurrection has done away with it. And so to say that the Psalms are typical is to say that we are not to sing them at all in the New Testament age. Second, it must be clear that the only earthly saint present in these visions is the Apostle John. And he does not participate in singing these new songs at all. He's simply an observer. Whereas in any New Testament ordinance, to remain a mere observer and not to participate would be a very serious sin. If you come to worship and you don't sing with God's people, you've sinned, unless you can't talk. But then you sing with your heart. (laughs) If you do not participate in prayer, an ordinance of God, you've sinned. If you do not participate in conscionable hearing of God's word, and the preaching of God's word, and receiving of the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. You sinned. In these passages, Revelation 14 and Revelation 15, very specifically, only those who were already redeemed from the earth and presently in heaven... Only those who already had overcome the beast and stood then glorified in heaven know the new songs and can sing them. That's what the passage says. Look at Revelation 14.3. Who alone can sing these new songs? Revelation 14.3 says, And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. 
Now, the 144,000 referred to that part of the Jewish church that underwent great persecution from the apostate Israel and from the beast, from both beasts in Revelation, and who stood before the throne of God. They were the only ones who could learn, it says, this new song. Furthermore, it says in Revelation 15, 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass and having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Again, note in verse 2, 15-2, those who have the victory, those who have already become victorious over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, who have even suffered at the point of death. These are the ones who sing the new song. <clears throat> I ask, in these visions, dear ones, did John put on a crown and cast his crown before God? Did John offer incense to God? Did John put on a white garment and grab a palm branch to wave before the Lord? Did John join the harpists in heaven? Absolutely not. Why not? Because it was not appropriate for him to do so. It was for those who had already obtained victory over the beast, those who had already been redeemed from the earth. And neither was singing those new songs appropriate for John. Thirdly, concerning these passages in Revelation, since these new songs in Revelation are clearly not for earthly saints to sing and worship, do we have new songs that we are to sing and worship? Absolutely, we have new songs. Turn with me to Psalm 40. Verse 3. Psalm 40, verse 3. David cries out to God and says, speaking of God, He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. In the Greek Septuagint, it says, A hymn to our God. He's put a new song in in my mouth, a hymn to our God. And in the, in the title of the psalm, a psalm of David. And so we find a psalm in the title. We find this called a new psalm and a hymn in the Greek Septuagint. All three terms used. A new song God put in his heart. What is a new song there? It's one of David's spirit-inspired psalms. It's the same language that David uses in 2 Samuel 23, 2. 
He says the anointed, he's the anointed. He says in Psalm 20, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 23, 1. The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. That is the title of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And then he says in verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. That's very, very similar to what David says. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise a hymn to our God. Spirit-inspired song. <clears throat> yes, we have new songs to sing to the Lord God. They are the psalms that we find in the inspired Psalter. And these are the psalms that we're told to sing in Psalm 98, 1, which we read earlier. In Psalm 98, 1. The whole congregation of God's people is said, commanded to sing. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. And then in verse 5, this new song here is called, Sing to the Lord with a harp, with a harp and the sound of a psalm. With trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. <clears throat> a new song the songs that we find in the inspired Psalter and fourthly final point is this the word new in new song the word new emphasizes that which is supernaturally created by God not that which is created by man New songs are not songs of man's invention. Whether one is talking about the new covenant in Matthew 26, 28, or new tongues in Mark 16, 17, or new commandment in John 13, 34, or new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, or new man in Ephesians 2, 15, or new name in Revelation 2.17, or a new Jerusalem in Revelation 3.12, or a new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21.1, or a new song in Revelation 14.3, the new characterizes it as being created by God. New songs are songs, dear ones, that have been created by God for his people to sing. They're not inspired or they're not written and composed by men. Whether the new songs of David, which are to be sung by God's earthly saints, or the new songs like those in Revelation that are to be sung by heavenly saints, they are all inspired songs. And as we close, simply want to challenge each of you this Lord's Day. Has the newness of that age, which is to come, changed your life in the way you presently live? Has the newness of the age to come had any impact and bearing on the way you live today? Receiving a new name. Dwelling in 
a new heaven and new earth where there is no unrighteousness and wickedness and sin. No pain, no heartache. Has a new Jerusalem that God has prepared for his people. Has that newness that is created by God alone changed your life at all? Has the future invaded your present? Has the future taken you captive so that in God's providence you live in light of the future? Do you make decisions on the basis of that new age to come? You see, the scripture is full of references that what is to occur in the future must impact our present. Christ's coming in 1 John 3.1 is to have a purifying effect upon the way we live today. The trials that you have gone through, waiting upon God to answer your prayers, the insults that you've endured by others, Have they been changed at all by your considering that new age to come? One of the things that I think I appreciate about attending and being part, attending a funeral, being there to, to um, acknowledge my love, to that person, to comfort and encourage the family that's left behind. One of the things besides that, that is a great encouragement to me, is to know my own mortality. To know that one day I'm going to be laid to rest and my soul is going to ascend into the very presence of God and I'm going to sing new songs to the Lord God. And God is going to give me a spiritual body at that resurrection. A body that will not decay nor be corrupted. And those are the thoughts, dear ones, that we ought to glean from death as those for whom death has lost its sting. It ought to have an impact on the way we live today. And if it doesn't, something is seriously wrong. Moses, it says in Hebrews, he was willing to endure affliction with God's people because he looked to the reward. That kept him going. That kept him from falling and not persevering. He looked to the reward. And you see, dear ones, there lies your reward as well. God will bring about a consummation of his salvation for you, his people. He will give you a new name and you will dwell in new heaven and a new earth and you will sing at that time 
of God's people new songs to the praise and the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the hope that is before us. Lord, let us not cast aside our hope and our confidence. Give to us the faith that perseveres and looks to the reward and that is purified knowing the shortness of this life and of the age to come. We ask, Heavenly Father, that even as we will sing those new songs in heaven, that you would give us great joy in singing the new songs that you have given to your saints here upon the earth. And that we would sing in light of our singing in the future, that we would sing with all of our hearts, that we would worship you with great joy, and that in that sense, heaven and earth would even now join and kiss one another. To the glory of God, our Savior. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.